John chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. And uh, this part of the Bible that we're looking at, we're focusing on how the disciples responded to Jesus announcing that he was leaving. And they respond by asking uh, some questions. So last week we looked at the issue of why it is that sometimes Christians, indeed even Christian leaders, mess up. What can we do about that? And we're looking at Peter's denial and Jesus' teaching about that. Well, this week uh, we're looking at an extremely important and relevant uh, matter, and that is, why is it that Jesus is the only way to God? So let's look at that together. John chapter 14 and uh, verses 5. Uh, through to seven. Thomas is speaking and uh, he's asking Jesus a question. John 14 verse 5. Thomas said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, this is God's word. Amen. Do please sit down. So as I say, this is an extremely important and relevant uh, question that we're looking at at this morning, namely, is Jesus Uh, the only way to God. We're picking up the story as Jesus is responding to the questions the disciples have been asking him. We looked at one big one last week. Why is it sometimes Christians mess up? This one is even bigger. Why is it that Jesus is the only way to God? How the claim that Jesus is making here in response to Thomas's question about how do you know the way, such a huge claim and how on earth can be true? And as as I want to set it up this way, I just want to I think we know this, I think we know it's important and relevant, but I want to make sure we understand just how important and precisely how relevant this is, not just for us as a church, but for the future of Christianity and indeed uh, really for the health of, um, well, everyone on the face of the planet. This is a huge, huge uh, issue today. Here's a statistic, a statistic that will help you understand that. 2014, Pew Charitable Trust, these people who do surveys, did a survey of all Americans figuring out how many Americans think that many different religions will get you to heaven. At least in 2014, the answer to that was roughly speaking 66%. So 66% of Americans think that many different religions can get you to heaven. It was actually a slight uh, downturn from a survey done in 2007 that said that 70%, so, but it's roughly speaking about the same, uh, maybe that's you. Maybe that's why you're here. You're here particularly because you want to figure out how it is that you can really believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Isn't that just a traditional view? Surely we know better these days. Now, it's a hugely important and hugely relevant question. For our outreach, therefore, if 66% of people think that many different religions get to heaven, then we've got to figure out how to answer this question. But also for our discipleship. If we ourselves, as a church, are not fully convinced that Jesus is the only way to God, we're unlikely 
to be sharing our faith. In fact, surveys also show that the numbers of Christians who are actually verbally sharing their faith is somewhat in decline. And I suspect that behind that is a hesitation to impose our view on someone else. But if Jesus truly is the only way to God, then we're not imposing our view. This is just what is. It's a hugely important question for our discipleship. It's a hugely important question for global missions. Why would we as a church do global missions unless we believe that Jesus is the only way to God? And perhaps sometimes why people are not fully committed to global missions is because they're not sure they want to impose Western viewpoints on other cultures or, 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 or something like that. Feels sort of colonial. Imposing your view on a different culture. And so what we tend to see is a, is a affirmation of an encouragement of a commitment to justice issues, which are hugely important. Of course, as a church, we must and are indeed committed to justice issues in all sorts of different ways. Uh, with our STARS ministry, with, our, uh, with our, some of our outreach ministries, the Outreach Community Center, with, with, with uh, reaching out to people in East Chicago. We're, we're very committed to those things. But what you tend to see is a, is a commitment to justice issues, but at the same time, uh, same time, a tendency to not be committed to verbally express your faith to other people. Because probably my, my, my sus- suspicion would be it's because we're not really sure that Jesus is the only way to God. And of course, it also impacts our commitment to the Christian life. If we really know that Jesus is the only way to God, then of course we're thoroughly committed to everything about Jesus, the, the body of Christ, the church. We're not quite sure. Why would we get out of bed on Sunday morning? A particularly relevant question for daylight savings time Sunday. It, it, it undermines our sense of commitment, our sense of devotion. But not only is it hugely important and relevant, it's also a particularly difficult question to answer today. Now, having said today, it's always been a difficult question to answer. I mean, th- this in many ways is the reason why Jesus went to the cross, because he claimed to be the only way to God, and no one goes to the Father except through him. What is more, the, the Roman Empire at the time, with all its different gods, with all its different religions, found the claim of, of the Christians foolish. It was a stumbling block. It was a scandal. It was foolishness. So it's always been a difficult thing for, Christ, for Christians to, to answer this question, but Especially today. And why is that? Well, because increasingly people today are not sure there is anything called absolute truth. And actually the numbers of people who are committed to absolute truth is declining statistically as the generations go down. So baby boomers, reasonably committed to absolute truth. Gen X, my generation, much less. Gen Y or millennials, less. Gen Z, those under 25, even less. There's a declining commitment to absolute truth. And therefore, of course, how could it possibly be the case that Jesus is the only way to God, which, if anything, is a, is a claim of some sort of absolute truth. 
So it's hugely important, hugely relevant, and difficult to answer today. Hence we come to our text. And what we find here, and I'm just going to say it first, and then as I go through it, I want you to realize it's, it's, the answer here will seem simple, but it's a bit like the TARDIS, you know, in Doctor Who. You get inside, it's much bigger than you think. So I'm just going to say it, and as we go through it, you'll see what a huge, I hope, what a huge answer it is. Why is Jesus the only way to God? What Jesus is saying here, the reason why he is the only way to God is because he is God. It's a TARDIS answer to the question. Much bigger on the inside when you begin to grasp it. See, what I'm trying to do as we go through this, and there will be three answers to three aspects of the sermon. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because he is God. And first of, all, first of all, we're going to have an understandable question, then a compelling answer, and then a relational strategy to help us understand this more and more and explore the answer to, to it together. An understandable question, a compelling answer, a relational strategy. What I'm trying to do with this sermon is to reinsert in our conversation and in our convictions... Jesus is the only way to God. And it so much needs to be done. Let me just illustrate that for a moment before we get into the body of the sermon. There's a well-known uh, TV sh- series uh, called Downton Abbey. Many of you would have seen it. I've watched it with my wife. <laughs> the things you do as a husband. No, I'm, jo- I'm joking. <laughs> In Downton Abbey, they're very committed to historical accuracy. Knives, forks, has to be in exactly the right place, that kind of thing. You will never see the Crawley family in Downton Abbey at the beginning of a meal. It was a deliberate choice for historical accuracy. You only see them in the middle of a meal. Why? Because a family in those days, at the beginning of a meal, would pray. And if we as a church are going to make any inroads into Wheaton, to Chicago land, around the world, we have to reinsert the, the compassionate beauty of Jesus as the only way to God so that we're not marginalizing that truth as so often is happening today. So first of all, we have an understandable question, and you'll find that in verse 5 with Thomas asking this question. And I just want to emphasize briefly, this first point is going to be very brief, I want to emphasize that it is an understandable question. So Thomas has been told by Jesus that he's leaving, and they've all been told that they know the way to where Jesus is going. And Thomas, understandably enough, comes back and he, he, and he says, well, hold on here, Jesus. You, you're, you're going somewhere. You haven't told us where, but you tell us that we know where you're going. But how can we know where you're going if we don't know where it is that you are going? It's, it's, it's a completely understandable question. It's the kind of question I would ask, that many of us would ask. You know, I think Thomas gets a bad rap. You know, dumb Thomas, doubting Thomas. He, he asked the kind of questions that we all want to ask. I thank God for Thomas. 
And if you're a Thomas here or you've got questions, I want, to, I want you to know that you're welcome, that we, we want those kind of people. Because until you ask the questions that are on your mind, you can't begin to find the answers. We need to be the noble Bereans, searching the Scriptures to find out whether these things are true and not assuming that we're going to get it like that. It sometimes can take time. So it's an understandable question, especially today, as I set up at the beginning. But here then comes the compelling answer, and this is verse 6. And of course, what Jesus says here is that he is, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does he mean by that, and why is that a compelling answer? Well, let me help us enter into that with an illustration. Isaac Newton, great scientist, when he first started as a student, was not thought to be particularly clever. But in those days, there was a plague in Cambridge, and everyone was evacuated from the city and was sent back home. Isaac Newton went back home. And for months, he was on his own, not formally studying. And every day, he would sit in his garden, an orchard, and just think. Just think. Hour after hour. Isaac Newton had this extraordinary ability just to, just to think. And as Newton was there thinking about the secrets of the universe and trying to figure things out, the story is, in the orchard, an apple fell to the ground. Thud. Something about that triggered in Newton's mind that there must be a compelling force, a compelling answer. There must be a compelling force that can explain why it is that that apple falls to the ground rather than hovers in midair or goes up. What, what is that force? And of course, Newton came to describe it as what we know as gravity, which not only explains why apples fall, but why so many aspects of our universe work the way that they do. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, the life, we are so familiar with that that it's easy for us to forget just how, what an extraordinary claim that is. Jesus is not claiming to be Newton to have discovered something. He's not saying, here is the truth. He's not saying, that is the way. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is something that no other religious leader of any significant major kind has ever said. Muhammad did not say this. Buddha did not say this. Jesus is claiming not to have discovered gravity. He's claiming to be the very center of gravity. He's saying that everything goes through him. He is the way. He's saying everything is understood by him. He is the truth. He's saying everything joyful and positive and wonderful is only in him. He is the life. He's, he's the very center of gravity. And when you grasp that, this compelling answer it pulls you in. When you grasp that, you, you, well, it has huge 
practical implications to begin with. Let's say you're a teenager or a student. One of the things that teenagers often wrestle with is, where am I going? Am I really on the right path? Is this Christian stuff truly going to help me? What kind of job am I going to get? Who am I going to marry? How do I know the right way? Well, here comes Jesus and says, look, so encouraging. He says, look, I'm the way. I'm the way. You're on the right path. Be committed to me. I am the way. So encouraging if you're a teenager. Maybe you're middle-aged. You know, there are compensations. There are good things about being younger. You're, you can be, you know, you've got youthful energy, you're strong, you're virile. You know, there are compensations with being younger, though it's stressful. There are compensations also with being older. You, you know, that can be difficult. But as they say, you know, when, when you're older, you're, your grandchildren are your reward for not killing your children. But in the middle of your life, oh, it can be hard. You can wonder whether you're ever going to get there. And even if you are successful, you can say to yourself, really, is this it? I mean, is this what I work for? And you can get discouraged. And you start to look for other things to fill the void, alcohol or drugs or sleeping around, whatever it is. And then Jesus comes along and says, don't be discouraged. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You, if, you're, if you're following me, you have the way, the truth, and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So encouraging. Or maybe you're an academic, a professor, or something like this. Now, our name's a church, is College Church, which in no way implies that everyone here goes to college or that you need a college degree to come here. In no way whatsoever. But of course, we do have people who make their living out of teaching and all that sort of thing in the academic world. Maybe you're, you're an academic person. And of course, one of the temptations of academia is you can begin to want to... Not so much keep up with the Joneses as keep up with the Harvards or the Yales or the Princetons. And you can come a little insecure about this evangelical Christian bubble as it feels. And maybe if you just marginalize a little bit here or add a little bit of not quite orthodoxy there, you can gain credibility through gaining approval from the Harvards of this world, and, and then you'll have a platform. And here comes Jesus, and he says, I'm the center of gravity. I'm the way and the truth and the life. You stick to me, and you have... It's not like you can discover a theory. You're, 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 you're going with gravity. You, you have the truth. I'm the truth. So encouraging. But it also answers the question. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because he's God. Think with me about this. I'll work at it from a number of different levels. Here's what will seem a little trivial level. Why is Wheaton the only way to Wheaton? 
Because it's Wheaton. Why is Jesus the only way to God? What if he's God? Then obviously he's the only way to God because he's God. Now, you may say, I don't believe that. Okay, well, that's why we're going to have the relational strategy in a moment. But it is a compelling answer. And no one else claimed that. No other great religious leader claimed that. It's not just difference, as if you've got a whole you know, set of different options here. It's a, it's a whole different category. He, he's not saying, I've discovered a philosophy that will be useful to you. Come and follow me. He's saying, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. It's a whole different category. And of course, you know, people who say there is no absolute truth. Well, this has so often been countered. I mean, you know, to say the claim that there is no absolute truth is self-referentially incoherent. In other words, it is a claim to absolute truth. Here comes along Jesus. He just blows apart all these options and says, okay, yeah, you can learn things from these different teachers and different ideas. Yeah, okay, there's some moral things that you can learn, but I'm not about that. I'm not, I'm not just a teacher. I'm the very center of gravity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're going to dismiss me, you're going to have to dismiss that. And you're running against gravity. So we've had an understandable question. It is understandable. We need to have space for people to think things through here as a church. And as Christians, we need to be like that, to allow people to think and wonder and ask questions. Jesus did. We need to be like that. But then we have the compelling answer, that he's the very center of gravity. But now we come, and I think it's really quite remarkable, to uh, the relational strategy. And this is verse, um, verse 7 of uh, the passage. And there Jesus basically is saying to Thomas, you know, if you'd really known me, uh, talking about the disciples with him, if you'd really known me, you would have understood this, but now you do know me, and so you will understand. In other words, it's really relational. It's, it's a personal knowledge. And the more you get to know Jesus, the more it becomes impossible to think that he could be anything other than the only way to God, because he is God. And if you're wrestling with that and thinking that through, then you need this relational strategy. That is to get to know, get to know Jesus. It's a bit like... I don't know whether you um, enjoy detective stories or not, but uh, I, I do sometimes. Uh, you know, Agatha Christie, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes. W- one of the tropes, one of the repeated themes of detective stories is that the, the detective initially doesn't come across as anything very special. So you get um, Hercule Poirot, who, who, who seems like just a sort of funny little man with nothing much about him, but he's brilliant. 
Or you get Miss Marple, who's a sort of older English lady drinking tea out of a sort of china teacup. And all the police are stumped. They can't figure out the answer to the case. But Miss Marple, she... She figures it out. Or, or even Sherlock Holmes, who, when you first meet him in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories, he's just strange, an unusual person. And then you figure out, oh, he's brilliant. He's, it's a bit like that. You, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you understand him, the more you read about what he did, who he is, and what he said, and, and what he claimed, the more it becomes like your eyes are open, and you cannot think there could be anything else, because you're not just... You're not just Meeting the person who described gravity, you're, you're, as it were, meeting gravity itself, the center of gravity itself. And it compels you in. It's a relational strategy. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, read the Bible. Keep coming to church to hear the Bible preached. Ask God to help you. You do the work of the Spirit to open your eyes and soften your heart. John Owen, a great uh, Bible teacher from yesteryear, once said that he who would separate the Word from the Spirit should as much just burn their Bibles. We need the Word and the Spirit. We need God's Spirit to help us see. Or Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your Word. Pray that. Say, Lord, open my eyes that I might see how you are the center of gravity. Let me leave you with this. Um, it will not surprise any of you, probably, to know that I am not a very good windsurfer. In my younger days, I did try to learn. And uh, one day, I was out windsurfing with a friend who was a very good windsurfer. Uh, off an island off England, in the islands called the Isle of Wight. And there I was windsurfing, and I began to realize that there was an offshore breeze, and I was gradually being sort of blown out and I, to sea. And I, so I started to tack to try and get my way back in. Couldn't make any progress. And my friends started to notice what was going on and began to shout instructions to me. And I tried to follow them. And that didn't make any difference either, all to no avail. Eventually, I, I, I started to visualize the... Um, the headlines in the newspapers the next morning. <laughs> Young pastor is blown out to sea, you know. And, um, and so this friend of mine dived into the water, swam to me, got on the windsurf and sailed us back in. Now, I think, many of us think, that's the answer. He rescued me. And of course, in a sense, it is. But when we share it just like that, Anselm, in his um, famous work, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Man, put it like this. He said, only God can make atonement. Only man ought to make atonement. Therefore, it is necessary that the God-man made atonement. In other words, if we just share it like he rescued me, someone else is going to come back and say, well, I found this helpful. I found this book helpful. I found this 
self-help guru helpful? Or uh, thank you for sharing your opinion, but this is my opinion. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What if it's a lot more than that? What if he didn't swim out? What if he walked on water? What if he opened the eyes of the blind and opened the ears of the deaf and made the mute talk and the lame walk? What if he healed the brokenhearted? What, what, what if he, with a word, stilled the storm? What if, what if he's the very center of gravity? What if he is, he is God? Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because he is God. Let's pray together. Well, first of all, perhaps you just use this uh, moment of quiet to ask Jesus to show you that more and more, this relational strategy to open your eyes. Perhaps you can just pray that prayer from the psalm. Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things, to behold you as you truly are. Maybe you pray that. Lord, open my eyes so I might see you more and more as you truly are. Would you pray that in this moment of quiet? Lord God, we pray that you would help us to believe and uh, preach, speak about, teach, live for you, not just as one among a whole list of different options, uh, but as the very center of gravity, as, as, as the Lord God that you are. Lord, I pray that that conviction will give us confidence when we face suffering and difficulties. And Lord, I pray that that conviction will give us encouragement when we need it. Lord, I pray that would be our conviction as a church. That as we proclaim the gospel, we'd be proclaiming you as Lord God. Would you honor that message, Lord, that is your message, to bring others to worship you too, as we do here bowing before you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.